talking about how Roddenberry came back from writing his Robin Hood adventure that never came about and was going to and got to see some of the dailies of the last two episodes that we've watched, right? Imud and uh, uh, the other silly one that we just watched. And we find out that he didn't appreciate it very much. And so the night before they were supposed to start filming this episode, which is, uh, of course, uh, Bread and Circuses. He does a, like almost a total rewrite on it and then is continuing to, over the course of the filming, hand in new sheets every day as they're filming. So what we're getting in this episode is a little more Roddenberry's vision of what Star Trek is and a little less of Gene Kuhn which obviously, as we've discussed over the last few weeks, that is pretty much from here on forward going to be all uh, Gene Roddenberry's vision with new people coming in to help interpret those things. And uh, this is the last we get of some of the humor and other things that Gene Kuhn, I think, appropriately brought to an episode like this. Agreed. But anyway... All of this was going to say is that he called this ver he called this episode a comic opera in 1967 Rome, and uh, I certainly don't feel like that's what this episode was at all. <laughs> so there's that. But again, we got a rewrite on it, so it's hard to say. Bread and Circuses is this week's episode, and while I don't find this to be a best of episode, I think it is surely a good one. Introductions, let's get those out of the way before I continue rambling on. My name is Matt, coming to you from Austin, and as always, my brother Ken is coming to us from Houston. Say hello, Ken. Hailing frequencies are open. Excellent. Well, uh, why don't you start us off by telling us uh, some general feelings about this episode? So, this is one of the Parallel Earth episodes. So, I like to, you know, kind of figure out what type of episode this is. This is a parallel Earth in which we're going to try to figure out how the Federation is going to contrast against some alternate Earth, some other version that, that could have played out. So, you know, every time we see an alternate Kirk, we're basically doing a study of our Kirk, the, the Kirk who's the main character. And we're doing the same thing with the Federation. So uh, we, we kind of have a character who belonged in the Federation and who's kind of gone astray. He's gone Roman. We have the reactions of our three, you know, our, our great trio to what mm -hmm. they see. You know, we have, uh, we have that kind of surprise piece that's always lurking there in the end, right, about the sun. They never figure that out. Right. It's Uhura who's been spending the whole episode listening to their transmissions who... Must be the, AM radio. 
That's that right. That she's listening to. Uh huh. Star Trek does some weird parallels, right? In which they kind of imagine they have this law, right? That uh, some sociologist has come up with that parallel Earths are a thing. And we're just going to beam down and find ourselves in the 1920s or, the, you know, 1967 Rome or, you know, Earth if something else had happened. And, you know, you're going to have these obligatory, well, it's uh, almost exactly like Earth. No, no. I mean, it's exactly like Earth. We've seen the, the kind where they look at a planet and it looks like the Earth or it looks like the Earth upside down. In this case, I think we get Spock yeah. giving us the no, no. The atmosphere is like precisely like Earth. So they lampshade it, right? They put a lampshade on it and go, "Nope, we're yeah. we're doing this parallel thing. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It's not because there's a low budget, although that may be lurking <laughs> somewhere in the background. But there, you know, there's this idea oh, yeah. that we're going to compare these two societies, and we and it doesn't work." if we compare the Klingons and the Federation, because those are two different societies, we kind of actually have to compare earth and earth. That was my thoughts. You know, it's a, there's a, well, that's good. It's a good place to start. Obviously we're going to dig into all of that stuff uh, way deeper as we get into this episode, but there was a note actually that uh, Gene Reinberry sent up to Gene Kuhn when uh, Gene Kuhn took over writing this episode. He says, um, I think this script needs to comment more on the strange parallels, right, between our Earth and their Earth. We can't just allow ourselves to get so blasé about Star Trek space travel that our characters seem to be saying, oh, hum, looks like it's another Earth parallel, complete with a humanoid bipeds, almost exactly like ourselves. So he says, uh, understood, of course, that we don't want to weigh our stories down with, these, with a philosophical dissertation, but there must be a middle road. So I thought that was kind of a, a cool idea that he's he's like, hey, we can't uh, just because it is like Earth. Let's not let our characters think that like, oh, geez, another Earth place again. Let's keep commenting about like, oh, and they speak English like they do. And uh, oh, they have cars that they drive and there's television. Let's just keep commenting about how weird it is. That way, at least it's something different and something fresh. Firstly, interestingly enough, it's it's interesting that this episode was the 14th episode produced, and yet it was the 25th episode that aired. This one uh, doesn't even air until the till March, basically. Yeah, it's and way late. More interesting. Yeah, it's way late in the season, and it oddly enough uh, aired on the uh, the uh, Ides of March. <laughs> It really did. So that's kind of weird. So we don't know if they ended up doing that on purpose or not, but that is the case. So well, this was like a, a reveal. Good. <clears throat> oh yeah, given the yeah, they should have gone for Easter. Easter, nineteen sixty-seven. Uh, March twenty-sixth. Oh, so yeah, so at least it was close. That's interesting. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. So this idea was a, a concept that was uh, that that it was one of those story ideas where Kuhn and Roddenberry are sit or, sitting around talking about, well, what would be interesting if we did this? What would be interesting if we did that? And so they kind of came up with this idea of a modern day Rome. And so then they went to uh, John Newbel, who was a playwright. He was also had written a bunch of television as well. So they're like, well, it'd be good. We'll get a fresh voice in here. Somebody new. 
Uh, also, interestingly, some uh, background on John Newbel, because I like to tell these things. Uh, he was uh, a native of America, Samoa. Uh, and he was a, a true Samoan prince and an Olympic swimmer. So that's two other interesting things about the writer of this episode. So uh, they give it to him to write. He's excited. He, uh, he writes the outline. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, of course, uh, sends a uh, somewhat lengthy uh, letter to Newball talking about things that work, things that don't work. But I thought that this was a little interesting piece here, uh, which, again, as we talk about what Trek is in Trek in general, I thought that this was pretty neat. He writes, the format, which has most successfully worked for Star Trek, requires, we find, more jeopardy than is presently in Bread and Circuses. We found that translating sci-fi into a visual medium requires an immediate line of jeopardy, which is apparent to the audience. As an example, on page three, Kirk gets captured and will hang in 12 hours unless something happens and the Enterprise has to be fooled into thinking he is enjoying a quiet vacation with a girl. <laughs> Not that I'm recommending this specifically for your script, he goes on to say. So it's kind of interesting how, again, as we talk about how the stories work in Star Trek, that we get another Roddenberry-like clear format how each episode is supposed to be broken down. The teaser. Something has to happen in the teaser. That'll bring everybody back, you know? He then makes a funny joke. Uh, I, I mean, it's kind of funny. <laughs> he makes a funny joke uh, talking about the slaves. He first says, which is an interesting idea, which we might want to talk a little bit on. He says, uh, obviously, we are in a 20th century level civilization, which employs the combustion engine and etc. Slavery would have to have some other function than just horsepower. Perhaps they enable our Romans to lead lives of uncomplicated luxury by taking a great number of decisions and modern complexities out of their homes. So he's thinking his idea is that if we're going to use slaves in this era, and yet we don't need them for plow horses or, you know, whatever it is that slaves used to do back in the day, picking grapes off of vines. Labor, yeah. That there has to be another use for them, which we see in uh, that girl with the crazy name who's Drusilla, right? right? A Buffy name if I've ever heard one. So uh, we see we see the use of the slaves in that, and we don't really know what the other slaves that got captured were doing. They certainly don't look like they were dressed for household management, that's for sure. And that was actually a huge role of slaves. <coughs> but not just that. In America, in the 19th, uh, in around 1900, the number one occupation was domestic servant. Uh-huh. You know, so the, just the labor involved in running a house, carrying water, carrying firewood, heating water, those three tasks alone could be six hours out of your workday. And so, you know, we haven't even started to cook or clean anything. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a series, you know, timeline in Britain, which will take a two historians and an archaeologist or two archaeologists and a historian and put them in, in, you know, serious. And the Victorian one, the, the woman historian is like getting up at like four in the morning to do the laundry because yeah. the laundry is such a huge process that, uh, you know, so I, one of the things that machines have done, the washing machine, um, 
ovens, a refrigerator, indoor plumbing, the electric light, fans, gas heat has done is to eliminate all of this labor for the household. So, you know, there are theories that Rome never would have industrialized with this, you know, with the, the slave labor force. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to presume, for reasons of telling the story, that they are industrialized, then, you know, you've got to look at the other things that people want to use human labor for. And a lot of it is, you know, run my errands, do my stuff, take care of my laundry. Right. Like, it seems like that's many actors have their assistants who do all that oh, kind yeah. of stuff. Hey, yeah. can you pick my dry cleaning? Can you go do this? Hey, get my coffee. You didn't get my coffee correctly. Mm -hmm. Go get me another one because your time doesn't matter. You know, those right. kinds of, um, those kinds of problems. So then he makes a joke at the bottom of the uh, letter, which I think is really funny. He goes, incidentally, that's not a bad idea. I could use a couple of slaves myself. Or on second thought, considering we, what we pay our housekeeper, maybe I've got one. What a terrible thought. That I have a slave, and instead of feeding her, I give her money to go out and feed herself. And probably not as well as I'd feed and clothe her if she lived more closely with the family. Okay, that's a terrible thought. I feel really guilty. <laughs> he writes. But, you know, it's funny, even if you think of, like, the Brady Bunch with their housekeeper right. Alice and, you know, yeah. all these other, like, live-in domesticated jobs, like you were saying, that's something that is really for the most part, fallen by the wayside, it seems. Right. Certainly most of your middle-class houses don't have... They may have, like, a maid who comes in and, like, straightens up twice a week or something like that, but they don't have, like, a, a live-in whatever. Yeah, and so, like, one of the main tasks, and I, I think that Alice has probably lasted beyond this, would have actually been taking care of young children. Mm-hmm. And so if we think that Alice's Nanny's real job for a long time had been nanny, and now that the kids are all reasonably old, you know, she needs to justify her function by making dinner and doing some of the other stuff that was more of a side before and now is all that's left. Yeah. And we've outsourced that. So that. we spend a lot of money to send our kids to good preschools and then good, you know, private schools and this kind of stuff. And it would be very Roman to have a tutor, mm -hmm. a tutor who is a Greek slave. Kind of on the assumption that, you know, Greeks are, they're learned and they're, they've got philosophy and they're going to bring the culture of Athens to Rome. And you want your children brought up with that kind of uh, you know, higher level culture. Yeah. So Stan Robertson gets it. He really likes the script, but, uh, He's, uh, again, upset about the idea of us constantly starting on the Enterprise. And he has noticed that over in season two, for the most part, all but like one episode, all of them have started on the Enterprise. And so he was like, he really wants to see more and more of us landing on the planet first. And then, and then if we have to go into the Enterprise, he loves that whole planet thing. He's a planet of the week guy, is he? Yes, he is. Stan Robinson was also concerned that too many of Star Trek's treks were taking the uh, NBC audience into the past rather than, rather than the future. So episodes like this where we've got Rome and, you know, Adonis, too, where we do that. Again, it's backward looking, and he thinks that the, the show should be far more uh, forward looking. 
Let's hear about the aliens. Let's hear about the robots. Let's hear about the, all the cool stuff that isn't sci-fi. Not all the stuff that we've already know a lot about. And we get some early episodes that are that feel really like that. You know, so we've got uh, the one with uh, the conscious, conscious of a king. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's a, a lot of that kind of stuff where you're finding out about what is it like to live in the future. You've got a colony off somewhere. You've got, you know, maybe the threat of starvation because, uh, you know, the crops don't work the way you think they will. And the supply ship doesn't mm-hmm. show up. And what are you going to do? And these are these are like problems you could imagine in space travel where it's not just, you know, so we've been to Jamestown and you, know, you get these stories of, you know, if the English don't send a ship, we don't get supplies and hardship. This would be, you know, supplies could be years away. You mm-hmm. can't just get them on subspace radio and say, hey, you know, uh, turns out we need way more, you know, medicine X and food Y. And they're like, okay, well, ship will be there in three years. Mm-hmm. As always, Bob Justman looking at the uh, bottom line was like, maybe we can cut out these ideas of the, the Roman Life magazine. But uh, Roddenberry was like, uh, nope, I don't think so. I don't think that that would be too expensive at all for us to do. I think that this is the kind of detail that makes our stories feel real. So Roddenberry was much more aboard doing uh, those magazines than uh, the poor guy who had to pay for them, which sounds typical. Although imagine, again, today, you know, labor saving. You could do something like that with uh, the Adobe Creative Suite. Yeah, true. And, and make... You know, a great looking magazine that wouldn't cost you. Well, actually, so it's funny. um, I have this written somewhere else in my notes. So the specifics of it, I'd be able to give you later. But there was a guy who used to build like aluminum cars. And so he'd make them all in sorts of different. So the car that he had built, he had uh, not only put on TV a couple of times, like in the Wild Wild West and whatnot, but he'd bring him to like auto shows and that kind of thing. And so, so this guy had this car that looks like the the jupiter 9 as we see in this one he brought it to the set they took a whole bunch of pictures of it they took those pictures you know they mocked up a whole like magazine page so back then it probably was fairly expensive to even just do something as simple as that whereas now you're like i could make this car look you know however i wanted to yeah funny thing about that car is that also at one point was on the 1966 batman series as catwoman's car ah so that's funny. There's another reference to uh, 66 Batman later in this episode, but we will get there. So uh, DC Fontana comes up with the great idea of having a hoorah tune, it, tune into live television and uh, see the barbaric arena games that bringing, you know, the tension up in the uh, opening, opening teaser as we like to do. So one of the things that we get to see here, right, is this they constantly are talking about television, right? So it becomes very meta. You have a television yes. show being critical of how television works and the quest for ratings, and you'll do anything for ratings, and there's a bunch of behind-the-scenes sh- you know, chicanery in order to juice the ratings or <coughs> you know, get the viewers. And you kind of wonder, like, how much of this is the fact that they're pissed off with NBC or... Right. You know, Desi Lou is now moving out of the picture, but you would have had a year and a half of like, we're being told no. We're being told we can't do great stuff because, you know, we're just interested in the money and the ratings and screw them because we got great stories to tell. 
That's right. Well, you know, it's funny. A lot of people, uh, you know, in some of the behind the scenes stuff I was reading and in the book, um, people were talking about, you know, how it was such a big, you know, hit on on NBC specifically and even more so just television in general with these, you know, fake arenas and the the turning of the knobs to make people boo and hiss or cheer loudly for the heroes and whatnot, which is interesting. But for some reason it just did, that didn't read for me i didn't none of that even came i didn't even think about any of that until after i like i said i was reading the behind the scenes stuff well, it's see, totally there go ahead desi lu invented the laugh track right <laughs> true and here they yeah. are they're, they're poking fun of the they're biting the hand that feeds them yeah that's true that's true of course by the time this goes into production you know as we know they, they just got sold so but even still yeah well, and the laugh track by now has been around for, you know, a dozen years. It's not like they just invented it and was like, ooh, very clever. It's like, we're sick of the laugh track. Anything, you know, it's the old way. It's evil. It's bad. Right. Well, you know, and so what I was going to continue on with that thought was that maybe I'm just too behind the scenes. Like, I know too much about how TV works and laugh tracks have been around, you know, forever obviously since desi lu um but you know also in all of the old 80s sitcoms we used to watch and all that kind of you know those laugh tracks were layered on to whatever studio audience they had as well <clears throat> and even sometimes it's inappropriately used remember that great uh, aaron sorkin show sports night they put a laugh track on there and they totally didn't need one but you know so i guess it was just, i was just like okay yeah yeah that was that if that was tv and you know tv in the 60s even still ran like tv would today but now having it pointed out to me, I'm definitely like, yeah, I, I can definitely see the, there are some jabs of like, hey, we cut into, you know, the early show 15 minutes early just to give you your own slot to die on TV. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know. He writes a second outline gratis, of course. And then when it actually comes time to actually write the script, he cites uh, personal and health reasons and uh and abandons the project. So Gene Kuhn then takes the outline and starts writing out the story, which of course he and Gene Rodmary had already created. Um, one of the really, uh, what really like Robert Justman and everybody kind of latched on and what they thought were gonna be really cool in this episode was the fact that, and tell me if this doesn't sound familiar, that Kirk and Spock were going to have to fight each other in this episode. So they were uh, super excited about this. Uh, the idea was is that the, uh, the pro-council basically says, uh, listen, I'm going to kill McCoy and Sulu because they were on the landing party. Um, Spock initially had appendicitis. Do that with that what you will. And uh, was going to have to stay behind and wait for McCoy to come back. But then once they lost track of the landing party, Spock beams down and is instantly taken in by the uh, Roman guards. So they set Spock and Kirk against each other in this big battle royale, right? So um, in the middle of it then, Spock tells Kirk to like, just plunge the sword into my left chest where the human heart would be. But in a Vulcan, guess what's actually there? Their <laughs> appendix. Ah. So, <laughs> I know, right? He's going to uh, kill two birds with one stone, quite literally. So um, of course now everybody thinks Spock's dead, but uh, sure enough that... Um, 
that wasn't uh, the way I was going to end up. But I thought that was a re- an interesting take that Kuhn had writing that first draft. So then uh, we've got, uh, as usual, the script is sent from or to DeForest Institute just to say, you know, like, hey, what do you think is real here? What do you think is not real here? And uh, if you remember in the episode, Spock lists, you know, the amount of people who died in World War One, in World War Two, in World War Three, right? Pete Sobel, that's his name, from the DeForest Institute says, uh, well, actually, in World War One, there were actually 8.5 million deaths. And in World War Two, there was something closer to 30, uh, 30 million deaths. So 37 million for World War Three seems a little bit conservative. I would suggest going way higher to like 260 million, <laughs> which is crazy. But uh, Sloman has said something like this before, but uh, it's, it bears repeating that he goes, at some point, you just have to decide, okay, this is going to be really bad science. This is going to be impossible. But because we are in a you know fantasy sci-fi world, we have to change some things. I'd grumble and throw things, but I knew what they were doing. So I had to let the story go through. It's also fun when Spock you know, embraces some kind of unpopular point of view. In order to argue, uh-huh. you know, there are advantages to this. You know, e- even if we're going to stipulate that it's the second best option, that this is not the ideal, there are real op- mm-hmm. there are real advantages to having gone this way. That you guys gave up for getting this other thing. And look where these people are—the Romans. So then the question of credit came up. So they uh, went to the Writers Guild arbitration and said, you know, the two genes were the ones who came up with this idea. We just gave it to Noble. He did the, you know, the first couple of outlines. Then we took it back and finished rewriting it. You know, how do we credit this? And of course, the WGA was like, uh, well, just go ahead and, you know, you guys get the writing comment, the writing credit and then we'll just do a story by john noble but then noble was like uh or newbell was like uh you know i didn't really even do that much i don't need to take it that's fine don't worry about it so that uh, doesn't even end up in the episode at that point so Ra- ralph siniski is back as a uh, director of this episode he's uh his uh everybody loved his previous episodes this side of paradise and metamorphosis so he was really excited to get going on this one. Jody Agosta at this point saved some uh, Desilu money by booking Rhodes Reason. He's the guy who plays Flavius. Rhodes Reason was also uh, got a three shows for the price of two deal by doing uh, casting him also in Mission Impossible and on the Lucy show. And then uh, because Reason was so accommodating, D'Agosta bought him back for five more uh, episodes of Here's Lucy when Lucy uh, does her own show after Desilu. Ian Wolfe, he was the actor who played Septimus, had this uh, little cool behind-the-scenes thing to say. This is uh, in the cave scene where, they're, uh, where Septimus is talking to Kirk. Ian Wolfe says, I heard Bill talking to the director, and Bill had quite of a bit of say-so back then. He felt that the scene with me in the cave was all wrong. And you know what? He was right. I even agreed with him. I didn't say, oh, damn. I just thought every word that he said was right. So uh, they cut most of my scene, (laughs) which I thought was funny. Well, uh, that's all I've got to start us off. Obviously, I've got some more behind the scenes coming up here. But as always, I'm going to say let's get to it.
and I'm going to get some more water real quick. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So we start off on the bridge. Everyone is uh, turned towards Spock, we see. They're all facing that way. We're already building tension right here with just the first shot of the episode as everyone's looking to see what Spock's looking at as he gazes into his scanner. It's debris he's scanning, we find out, from the SS Beetle. What a sad name for a ship, right? I mean, we got Voyager, we got Discovery, we got the Enterprise. We got Excelsior. And this is the SS Beetle. Womp womp. Is it the Beetle or the Beagle? Well, I thought it was the Beagle at first, but then later in the scene, I thought they said Beetle. Hmm. I don't know. You should look that up while we're while I'm uh, continuing on. Uh, try Memory Alpha. It's probably on their description of the episode. Yeah, because the Beagle so, is the is the ship that. Uh, yeah, it is. It's the SS Beagle, which is the, the ship that, that Darwin was on in his voyage. Of oh, all right. Well, I feel a little bit better about the naming of that ship then. Yeah, the SS Beagle is a 23rd century Federation Class 4 survey vessel. So surveying is exactly what you would do, although this is operated by the Merchant Service. The Beagle had a crew of 47 and was commanded by Captain R.M. Merrick. That's right. So uh, they use the computer to extrapolate where the debris has floated uh, over the last six years since it went missing. No bodies were discovered among the wreckage. To which I asked the question, would there have been bodies? What are they scanning for? Like DNA? The good news is that the DeForest group agrees with me. They said that uh, more than likely the bodies would have been vaporized by an explosion from the ship. But it feels very like, um, we've talked about this before, is the parallels of the Starfleet and whatnot to the Navy, which, as you pointed out, probably many of the guys who were uh, working on the show were a part of, you know, during the war. So it's funny how we get this idea of like drifting, like where did it, where did the debris yeah. drift from, where were the bodies? So you, you can just imagine them like extrapolating all of that and putting it into space. So uh, we find out that Captain Merrick, who was with the uh, with Kirk at the academy. He was, uh, he left, we find out, and went into the merchant service. Okay, so now there's a merchant service. Again, very naval. Probably started by some descendant of, you know, Alexander Hamilton, probably somewhere. It's a class M planet. There is no atomic power, but they do have television. The news prog. The news broadcast shows uh, slaves being taken away. And then a gladiatorial fight, paying an homage to, to the planet's past. Much like our Romans, it seems. What are we seeing? 20th century Rome, asks Kirk. And we find out that one of the gladiators' names matches uh, of uh, someone who is on the manifest of the beetle. Or the Beagle. Kirk decides to beam down as we go to credits. Back at it, Kirk, Spock, and Bones beam down to the planet with two moons. They are in a secluded area away from the city. The planet is very close to 20th century Earth and its air quality. Smog, as Bones tells us. 
Here we also get our, uh, I believe, right? This is our first mention of the Prime Directive. I know we've discussed the Prime Directive before, but has the show? Maybe in the Apple? Mm, since, I'm, since I have memory alpha here, let's... Uh... Yeah, let's look it on up. Prime Directive. Because a little bit later, we'll definitely be getting into a little discussion about uh, the Prime Directive, for sure. As it's such a major plot point. Yeah, so the first episode they identify is the is bread and circuses. Yeah, so it's a major plot point and they talk about it a lot, but it certainly seems that you know principles in that they've been uh, that we describe as the is the prime directive have been at work in the past. Even if they didn't cite yeah. yeah. It's the not first like directive. Concept, yeah. Oh, that's right. They called it sometime, didn't they? Like, what is yeah, the first directive? Yeah, so let's directive? see. I think that that happens. So episodes that involve the, the prime directive and the competing priorities about whether or not they interfere, return of the archons, the apple, oh, do, 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 do. Mm -hmm. So those are all, I mean, we've seen both of those. Yep. I, I think they just didn't give it a name yet. Because this uh, this appears to be the first episode of Bread and Circus in which they give it a name. And and they'll mention so it they... again in the very next episode. Mm -hmm. Because uh, owing to the fact that I've now watched this episode twice in preparation for this podcast, this weekend in preparation for this podcast, I actually uh -huh. watched the next episode because I thought we'd already done the previous episode because I've seen it twice. <laughs> <laughs> so uh -oh. I know there are, there are several references to that. Kirk, you can't use your phaser. It's strictly forbidden by the Prime Directive. Ah, uh, yes, I'll throw a rock. <laughs> so the crew continues on trying to uh, find out if they can find anything about the crew of the Beagle. Bones and Spock have a little back and forth here about uh, arriving and pretending to be angels. Although with your ears, Spock. When suddenly, our crew is shot at. Oh no. Put your hands up, screams the shooter. Mm. Another parallel Earth, says Spock. And another, another planet that speaks English. Ooh. Uh, the group with rifles, they stand and approach and disarm our crew. One guy steps towards us, towards Spock, and uh, he kind of has this like uh, tough guy, not quite John Wayne speak of saying, uh, "Where are you from, and what do you call those ears?" Says Spock, "I call them ears." Ah, you trying to be funny? Never, says Spock. Funny little scene there. Love it. So uh, they take the crew away. The, they take the crew away to uh, Septimus, their leader. Septimus tells them, "We only want peace." And Bone says, "Yes, that's what we want too. It works out." Spock then asks about the crew of the Beagle, but uh, no one knows them. Kirk then tells them if they don't, uh, 
Kirk then tells them that they don't believe in slavery, but uh, that John Wayne doesn't believe them. Kirk then contacts the ship. He shows the group technology that they did that they don't have, and neither does the Empire. And somehow, with that, they are accepted into the group. <laughs> we get our captain's log, star date 4040.7. Kirk explains to us that these are slaves living on a 20th century uh, Earth-type planet, and we're caught up. That's all we needed to know. The episode We know everything now that's happened in the episode so far. Thanks again. Kirk tries to ask Septimus about the crew of the Beagle. Uh, have you heard rumors of men from other worlds? There are no other worlds, says Septimus. Just lights in the sky and the sun. Flipping through a magazine, we see a car with the name Jupiter 8. That's a false god, says Septimus. I once believed like the others, but then I heard the word of the sun. It must have burned into his ears. Ha <laughs> eh? ha. Burned into his ears because it's the sun. Anyway, Kirk asks Septimus to uh, get into the city. They must find their friends, Merrick. Merrickus, says Septimus, and the others crowd around Kirk. And he stands up, suddenly feeling moved in on, like, whoa, hey, what's going on here? Maricus is the first citizen. He became Lord of the Games six years ago, which is convenient, because that's when the Beagle was lost. Kirk tells them that, uh, that their way is uh, non-interference, and if Maricus and Merrick are the same person, he must be taken away by our laws. He asks them again for help. Septimus says, I must speak with the others. The slaves walk away and our three talk. What is Merrick doing and how can we stop him? Almost as a throwaway, Bones here then asks uh, why they worship the sun when Rome had no such sun worshippers. So we find out actually that this was false. Uh, McCoy's claim that Rome had no sun worshippers is incorrect. Rome, in fact, had several cults that revered the sun gods, such as Helios, Apollo, Sol, from the uh, Mithras, from the, Greeks, from, the Mithras from the Persians. Yeah, so uh, Alagabalus from, from the Syrians. Yeah, those are foreign cults. And Apollo and Helios would have been. So, like, Apollo had like a thousand, you know, as, as we talked about during Who Mourns for Adonis, had a bunch of jobs. Disease, you know, he ran the muses, music. He had like a big cattle thing going on. He was all over the place. So the sun was like a part of his yeah. many, many. So, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, if you compare it to like Egypt, in which the sun god was chief of the pantheon and was very solar, as opposed to for the uh -huh. Greeks and the Romans, for whom, you know, it's one of their secondary guys. It's, it's not the big three, not Hades, um, Zeus, who otherwise has the sky, or uh, Poseidon. It's not one of those guys. It's Zeus's son, and he's got, like, a bunch of other stuff that you're concerned about. So, not central. Interestingly enough, when you, you as you go north, the sky becomes more important and the sun becomes less important, mythologically. Oh. That makes sense. 
in Egypt where the sun is always burning and right. up north where it gets cold. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like storms and clouds is the thing that they focus on. The angry sky. So the group of slaves come back and uh, Flavius says that he will lead them into the city. And off they go. Now, one thing I've already noticed in this episode is there's lots of like weird filler in this episode. There's uh, the shot of them like walking all the way down the mountain. And then here we get the scene of them like walking through the forest with no dialogue or anything happening. It's just weird. You know, it's like these extra like 15, 20, 30 seconds of like nothing happening except for them walking. But I guess, too, they don't get outdoors much on the show, so they might as well show it off while they can. We find out that Flavius was a gladiator. Mm. And then he, too, heard the word of the sun. I thought it was an interesting use of the name Flavius here, because as we know, back in the day, uh, well, at least according to Shakespeare, Flavius was part of the regime with Anthony that brought down Julius Caesar. So interesting that we've got a Flavius here who's going to help down bring the uh, first citizen. Possibly. There's also a Flavian dynasty that was emperors of Rome. Oh, well, there you go. And Septimus means he's the seventh. Like September. Yeah. Uh, They're quickly, though, caught by guards with automatic rifles. That's not cool. Flavius is recognized and he tries to attack the guards, but it's all for naught. The lead guard looks at Spock and pulls his hat off and reveals Spock's Vulcan ears. Aha! It's a barbarian, says the lead guard. Been a long time since I've seen a barbarian die in the games. Womp, 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 commercial. So it's interesting here because we have a lot of Roman parallels, uh, which is... If we think at this point, right, in the 50s, I, I just did that. Sh I did the show a few years ago, Laughter on the 23rd Floor, right, which is about the writer's room of the Sid Caesar show. And there's a whole bit in the second act about Julius. It's about Brando playing Mark Anthony, right? So that's kind of the bit. But in the 50s, right, they're, one of the biggest movies of the time was Julius Caesar starring Brando as Mark Anthony. So... The idea of, you know, Roman living, besides just, you know, history. Julius Caesar, you know, Flavius, and uh, all of these guys, uh, you know, was probably on a lot of people's, was known in a lot of people's minds right? because of yeah. the Brando movie. Mm -hmm. It's probably also why a lot of the Romans in this episode have like Brooklyn accents, because right. <laughs> they're all sort of doing a, doing a uh, Brando impersonation. But, you know, we also got a lot of terms that are being used. You know, the idea of barbarians, right? Uh, barbarians back in, you can help me correct this if I'm wrong, but barbarians back in Roman times were basically like these unaffiliated hordes of people, right? So for the Greeks, barbarians were people who did not speak Greek. And their language oh, okay. sounded like bar, 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 bar. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and the the Romans took took Greek, the Greek idea of barbarian. And for them, it didn't mean someone who didn't speak Latin, but someone who didn't have Greco-Roman culture. So bathing, shaving, 
you know, certain kinds of, you know, personal grooming habits. You're walking around with a beard and, and wearing furs. You're a barbarian. <laughs> On the other hand, you could be a German, you know, shave yourself, um, go to the public baths, you know, do this kind of stuff. And, well, you're civilized. Ah, gotcha. Whereas for the Greeks, no, nope, you're still a barbarian. You're just faking it. But we appreciate the effort. Because, <laughs> you know, you, you've acknowledged the superior culture. <laughs> but for the exactly. Greeks, we, we don't forget you're a barbarian. Interesting, interesting. So uh, back to it from the commercial. We get uh, we get a look around the Roman city here. We got all these like amazing Roman looking buildings, cars whizzing by them as well. We also get a, a, a nice stock shot of uh, MIT looking very Roman there. Uh, our crew is locked up. Kirk tells the head guard that he should let Mericus know that Jim Kirk is down here. Possible friend of his. Possible friend, says the guard. Well, would you like to find out that that's true? And then have him find out that you didn't tell him that I was there? Oh, Kirk, you manipulator, there you go again. <laughs> uh, but we, we find out from Flavius that the slaves of this planet used to rebel, but now they have rights. They get, they get medical, which is nice, uh, and they get an old age pension, so at some point in their lives they get to stop being a slave, I guess. Yeah, so the, the Roman theory of slavery, again, we're going to contrast it with the Greek, was it was easy to, you know, like, assuming you had the funds, to buy your way out of slavery. This, people would go into slavery as a business venture because hmm. it was difficult to owe people money in, in Roman law. And so what you would do is you'd sell yourself to slavery. So you'd become someone's slave. Then you would start your business with the capital of your patron who would then get to collect the profits. And then, you know, at some point your term of, of slavery would be over. You'd, you'd buy yourself out. And so he made some money basically by being your investor in your business. You know, so the, the idea of like slavery mm -hmm. being this kind of permanent chattel slavery situation, that's not the case. Now, the Greeks, again, with their barbarian, you know, like, well, you're not Greek, therefore you're inferior. They had uh, the concept of slavery being like, well, this is what happens when you lose battles and you, you're just an inferior people. It's the, it's the lot of the inferiors mm -hmm. who, who get conquered by Greeks. And so yeah. the Romans had the idea that that you know, captured people would become slaves, but you know those. If if your master liked you, he could give you a gift and free you. And in which case, what you'd often do is then become his his uh, client to his patron. So you'd still be his man, but now you were legally free. There we go. The background on ancient slavery by Ken Gauk. Um, Bones and Spock get into an argument about logic because because uh, at this point now uh, Bones is using logic and uh, Spock doesn't like the way he's using it. Flavius then asks, "Are they enemies, Captain?" <laughs> to which Kirk says, "I'm not sure. They're sure." Yeah, it's a great line. I know, love it. And it comes back later. 
Kirk, uh, you know, it's the great thing too. This isn't in my notes, but something I just thought of. Um, it, it, it's a good thing too. Like a lot of times you'll find really great lines in shows, in movies, especially are the ones that come back. Right. Mm-hmm. So suddenly you get this really great, like little piece of dialogue and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, a half hour later, it comes back because it plays something important to what's happening between two, the two characters later. So here we get this, you know, again, this great moment when Bones and Spock are almost having a heart to heart and he uses it. You know, Kirk sometimes says, and I don't even know if it's true. He's probably right. Kirk asks about the sun worshipers. Flavia says, I don't even know when it started. It's been around for so long. But the sun tells us that we are all brothers. The guards come back and pull Flavius out. He's to fight in the morning. But Flavius says, I'm not going to fight. It's against my religion, basically, is what he says. But the guards don't believe it and take him away anyway. The three others are told to follow. Kirk then murmurs to Spock and Bones. The three on three will never have a better chance. Bones then pretends to be sick in a really funny scene as well. Bones pretends to be sick, and then the guards try to try to help him out. And then Spock does a Vulcan hand pinch, and Kirk attacks the lead guard. Bones helps with the last. The attempt works, and they run out of the cell. Ooh, only to find Maricus standing there. Maricus asks them not to judge him until they have heard the whole story. They are then taken to the throne room. The pro-council looks over Spock, seeing his first Vulcan. He wishes that he had 50 for the arenas to fight against each other. Then McCoy. He wishes that he could let bones loose in their hospitals. Their survival rate would increase greatly. Which is interesting, because why couldn't he let... I mean, obviously we know, because he's with the crew and whatnot. But, you know, I'm sure McCoy would be like, well, damn it, now I'm in a hospital. I feel like I have to take care of these people probably true probably could let him loose knowing bones uh they all sit kirk asks merrick what happened to the ship well we had meteor damage so we come ashore to find some minerals for repairs but then they uh they were found by the pro-council and he didn't want them to leave fear that news of this world would bring other peoples from other planets this is an ordered world, says Merrick. Thoughts and ideas from other worlds would screw it up. Spock finds this fascinating. He likes the checks and balances of this world and that it has managed to uh, not have the three world wars that Earth had. We were discussing that earlier. Boin, uh, Boins. <laughs> Where's that guy? Is Boins. Bones points out that despotism, uh, the despotism and slavery happening on this world, which, says Spock, would be familiar to those in both the countries of your first world war and the second. Oh. Which do you prefer, Captain? Proconsul says to Kirk. My world is my ship and my oath. He turns to Merrick. It's obvious what happened to your oath. Ooh. Slam, slam, slam. What happened to your crew, Merrick? Those that could adapt survived. Those that couldn't? Dot, dot, dot. Hanging in the air. Merrick and the pro-consul ask uh, Kirk to order his crew down here. But he refuses. So then the pro-consul threatens Bones and Spock. Kirk 
takes the communicator and smiles as Bones yells, No! (coughs) Kirk looks like he's about to tell Scotty, like, don't come down here, ever. But then guards show up with rifles, and they put him to not only uh, Kirk's head, but Spock and Bones as well. Be smart, says the pro-council. We don't want to end up sending sending up bullet-ridden bodies. Kirk says, my engineer is still waiting for a message. Kirk says, I could bring down a hundred men with phasers. And the pro-council says, it would probably take out our entire army. But that would violate your non-interference clause, he says. All right. So here's the problem, as we had before us, with about the Prime Directive, right? Right. We're in this situation where... uh, we can either interfere, bring down phasers, and bring down an entire like despotic regime, or you know, Kirk and uh, his crew could die. It's kind of where we're at here, as far as the Prime Directive goes. So, you know, how far are we in Starfleet supposed to take this order, right? I mean, should we allow this planet, even though they don't have a uh, you know, spaceships and whatnot to continue in its despotic ways. Is that what the Starfleet is saying? Yeah, I think totally Starfleet's because to interfere, we're going to cause more harm than if we leave things alone. Mm-hmm. That it's very possible that you'd bring down the despotism of this Roman system and then just get anarchy and all kinds of chaos and that would be miserable. So in that way, then, Spock is right. Right. <laughs> There's something to this. They ask Kirk again to uh, send the command crew down. Kirk very quickly says, Scotty, condition green, all is well. Kirk out. Click. Ooh, but the Pro Council is mad, but does not shoot them. Instead, he insists that they prepare themselves for the games. Merrick tells them that the uh, that this is no longer academy training. You are being taken to die, Kirk. Commercial. Back at it. We got Scott now with the officer's log. Condition green actually means that they are in trouble, but it prohibits him taking any action. So Scott has checkoff. Check out. <laughs> so Scott has checkoff. Find their power sources. And what it would take to overload them. Scott says, he can't interfere, but he can cause fear. Ooh. (laughs) See what they did there? Interfere, cause fear. We find ourselves on the uh, set in a TV station now with a fake arena. Bones and Spock are offered up in the first fight as barbarians fight against Flavius and another man named Achilles. This strikes me as odd. Because you, you'd think, well, what is, what is the best analog that we have for the games? And it would be sports, right? Major League Sports, especially right. football. But, you know, boxing, wrestling, you know, any, any of these that would have been familiar. Some of our ball games, like basketball and baseball, the Romans wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, I totally dig the appeal. But I think they'd get football and they totally get wrestling and boxing. Because they had wrestling and boxing. Yeah. And 
you'd sell tickets to these things, right? You'd fill stadiums like the Romans did. You yeah. wouldn't just do TV. The idea that television had replaced going to the arena suggests like a population so docile, so I can't get off the couch to even go to the games. Yeah, the games would be a lot of fun. You get to see the blood sport live. You know, you could indulge in some of that delicious uh, Coliseum food. But well, I'm know, sure that part of it too is just the the budget that they have to make this episode. Sinisky right. does us did say that he was like part of the problem I had with this episode was I wish the arena could have been bigger. I wish it could have looked right. more like an arena and less like a set. But what they're doing is they're commenting on television, right? Well, yeah, that too. Because they could have done some, you know, overhead shots of, you know, some Coliseum. This is the L.A. Coliseum, right? You know, from the right, right angles, you could have made it look like, ooh, there is a Coliseum. You show people leaving on game day or whatever. You know, stock right. footage kind of a thing. But they don't go with the, we'll throw in some stock footage and hope that people don't notice that those are all Chevys, not Jupiter 8s. Yes. And you just go with it. But instead, they really focus on this. This is all fake. Right? We got dials for the, the cheering and the booing. You know, it's all taking place in a studio. There's no crowd. But you, you know, watching it, you might think, wow, it looks like the people in the stands are having some fun. Can, can we get some tickets? Mm -hmm. uh, right. It doesn't appear that any stadiums are selling tickets. <laughs> What's up with that? Well, maybe there are other ventures, you know, but these are right. like the headliners. Yeah, could be. Or that these are, you know, when the state wants to punish somebody and throw them in the games, they don't wait to, you know, for a slot to open up in a scheduled stadium. They just, like, put them on TV and let's pretend. Yep. The fight begins. Spock informs Achilles that he is more than capable of uh, defeating him, but I don't want to, says Spock. This doesn't stop Achilles, surprisingly. Meanwhile, Flavius is barely putting up a fight against Bones. His nonviolent ways are stopping him. Plus, of course, we know that he could take out Bones in no time. <laughs> Flavius is then whipped for not fighting. Both he and Bones start half-heartedly hitting each other's shields with their swords. Fighting continues. Yeah, so there's like a particular kind of fighting going on here, right? This uh -huh. is so. There's a style of fighting. You could all kinds of movies involving swords. You know, even going back to swashbuckler movies of the '30s, have these these fights where you appear to want to hit the other guy's sword. You're not trying to stab him or cut him or poke him. You're trying to hit the other guy's sword. Like, what, what's the point of that fighting? Hitting his sword, right? Right? You try to hit him, and he's blocking it with his sword. But no, you're like, and we, or when people miss, they miss by like a mile, and they leave themselves so wide open that, like in real combat, someone would stab them. The purpose of this fighting is to take yeah. actors who don't know how to fight and give them weapons where they can hurt each other, even if they're fake weapons, you can still hurt each other, and have them not yeah. hurt each other yeah. by never actually aiming at the other actor. Instead, you aim at his, his weapon. Yeah. <laughs> you get nice noises. It vaguely looks like uh -huh. combat. <laughs> uh huh. And that's what we get here. So instead of getting some 
realistic, uh, you know, fighting, which you kind of get more in movies and stuff well, where people are, you know. I think Lord of the Rings had some really good combat. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you had you would. Well, I think there's also masters. There's also two things going on here. So first, in world, right, we have that Bones has no idea what he's doing. Right, <laughs> I'm a doctor, not a gladiator. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Secondly, we also have the idea that you know DeForest Kelly in real life, DeForest Kelly is probably not at all any kind of stage combat or anything as well. He's probably used to you know shooting guns and westerns and whatnot. Yeah, so he's a western dude, like right. A, Exactly. And you see when they do the pull away of Bones actually fighting Flavius, you can tell pretty uh, pretty easily that it's a stuntman. But because he's got six you fingers. Do have that w- What's that? Because he's got six fingers? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. So let's see. So the fighting continues. Merrick in the stand says to Kirk, uh, you see why we gave in? Flavius is whipped again. To which, uh, to which he yells at Bones, well, at least try and defend yourself. Bones says, I am defending myself. Kirk is putting on a brave face, but the uh, proconsul doesn't buy it. Then Spock knocks out his competitor and in a breach of protocol, hand pinches Flavius. The guards run on set. Mm. The pro console sends them back to the cage as we go to commercial. What has Spock done here? What a breach of protocol on that guy's part. It's like you send a man to death and he breaks the rules. He cheats. What a cheater. Why can't he just accept his death like a, you know, an honorable criminal guy? Like a man. <laughs> Who That's breaks like the rules gets sent to the games. Back to it, uh, we find Kirk is uh, brought to the throne room and then left alone. The lady slave, Drusilla, of the proconsul enters. She is to offer food and wine and herself for whatever Kirk wishes. She is his slave for the night. But Kirk rejects it. Proconsul, you'll get no entertainment out of me, he says. In the cell, Spock is trying to bend the bars. And what we end up getting here is the great scene between Bones and Spock. McCoy tries to thank Spock for saving him in the arena. Spock says, oh, yes, that human thing of trying to thank people. <laughs> I guess the proper response is, you're welcome. And plus, I was trying to save the ship's surgeon, no matter what I think of his skills. <laughs> Bones says, Now I know why you're afraid to die, Spock. You're afraid of living. Each day you stay alive. It is just one more day you might slip and let your human half peek out. That's it, isn't it? Insecurity. Why, you wouldn't know what to do with a genuine, warm, decent feeling. I'm worried about Jim, too, says Bones. To which Spock replies, Now really... Doctor. <laughs> Although McCoy has saved Spock on more than one occasion. That's right. But Bones has no reason to be worried about Jim 
Because back in the throne room, the slave girl is throwing him, throwing herself at Kirk. And of course, they kiss. And what we get here is a camera pan towards the lamp above their heads. More bubbles coming up from behind the rock, right? <laughs> Cut to a later shot of the lamp. We, we uh, pan back down. Kirk is out like a light, sleeping dressed on the chair. The proconsul wakes him. He wants to chat. A communicator is missing, he says. Was it my lovely Drusilla? I wouldn't blame her. I would still blame you. You know, you could have been a great Roman. Which I actually love because I think, uh, I think that there is. A, I guess we've seen the other. We've seen the Roman Kirk, haven't we? That was in the uh, either in the Enemy Within, but I'm thinking more of the. What's the half one? The one where they parallel universe. Mirror, 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 mirror. Yes, that would be the Roman Kirk. I think. Well, the Romans are civilized. Fair, not barbarians, That's as right. we learned. So I mean, you'd, you'd want. I mean, so like part part of our, our problem with figuring out who the Romans would be is our Romans are ancient Romans in which mm -hmm. our most civilized people are going to strike us as not terribly civilized or lacking in some key element. I mean, they may enjoy poetry and art and so forth, which is part of our definition of civilization, our, our concept. But they're also capable of a lot of brutality. And part of our problem, as Spock points out, is that we overlook our own brutality, right? We take it for mm -hmm. granted. It's just normal. We don't see it. We're like the fish in the water. We don't notice it. So, like, you'd have to take Rome and move it to the 20th century, in which case they're very likely to drop a lot of the stuff that would strike us as uncivilized. And even if they've still got some of it, you'd then have to go, well... Compared to us, are they more or less civilized? And we're now in the realm of, you know, just making stuff up because we, we have an episode, right? And we have Spock's right. comments, which suggest to us that an argument can be made, but it's not like we have the tools to make that argument in, you know, in a complete way. Well, also, too, I mean, I guess we have our. We have, at least in the world of Star Trek, we have our current era Romans, and they are Romulans. Right. Uh, mishap? I don't know what you'd call it, but uh, the insignia here that uh, Proconsul Marcus is wearing is not a Roman sim symbol, as we would know it, like the legionary eagle, right? But it is, in fact, more interestingly, the coat of arms of the English playwright William Shakespeare. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> So they had a little badge and they're like, this will work. Oh, well, that's good. We're kind of doing Shakespeare level stuff here now, aren't we? Also, a little interesting fun behind the scenes fact, uh, a number of the costumes and props from this were uh, recycled out of Paramount storage. So here's it where, you know, being yeah. friends with uh, Paramount works for you. A lot of these Roman guard outfits were seen in um, Cleopatra when Cecil Bill DeMille did that big epic. Well, if you thought the slam that we had earlier was big, wait till you get here. Because Kirk asks him for explanation of uh, what's happening in the world. Merrick says, I'll give you an answer as you are a man. And then he sends Merrick away. Because two, uh, this talk between two men shouldn't interest you. 
wow. Yeah. <laughs> what a, a slam, slam against Merrick. Yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, obviously, it's the thing that makes Merrick decide to turn against the system that has made him first citizen. Because if this yep. is what you really think of me, screw you. Yeah, because I, I'm sure the pro council thinks he's running everything through Merrick. Emasculated, I write. Merrick walks out. Even Kirk isn't sure how he feels about it. Yeah. But the pro council <laughs> continues. That's right. I'm sorry. Kirk was asking earlier about uh, why he gave the slave to him last night. Because as a man, I gave you one last night to be a man. Because you will die today. But you will die like a man. Thanks, says Kirk. What about the others? My Sim Simmy's wearing Old Spice. What? <laughs> oh, what I mean to be a man? Yeah, yeah. I was just maybe it's maybe it's, I think it's Irish Spring. I don't know. I don't know now either. Uh, what about the others? The others of my crew. They too will die like men. Which I guess is nice. They got that going for them. We even preempted the early show to give you your own time slot for my death. Gee, thanks a lot. I'm so excited. Aboard the Enterprise, uh, Scott is ready with his plan. Hmm, I wonder when this is going to happen. Back to the TV set. The actual TV set. Uh, we hear it's a simple execution. But then Flavius runs on and uh, takes out the executioner. Proconsul sends in the guards. He fires, killing Flavius with his automatic rifle. Then Kirk turns his, uh, turns the executioner towards the man with the gun, and he catches some fire, too. Kirk then throws the body into the last guard, and Kirk stabs him dead. Another guard rushes in, and Kirk takes him out, too. And then the lights go out, and Kirk escapes. He finds Spock and McCoy down in the dungeons and sets them free. Oh, but it's not that easy. The guards arrive with their automatic rifles pulled. The proconsul and Merrick show up as well. And the pro American says, Now watch how a real man dies. It's like they're living a loveless marriage or something. The sad state of affairs. Exactly. Uh, but then the proconsul tells them for some reason, No guns. Only swords will they die like men. Then the guards pull their swords and rush. And now Kirk and Spock fight. We cut to Merrick as he calls the Enterprise. Three to beam up, he says. But even before he can finish that sentence, Marcus stabs him in the back. Ugh. Et tu, Marcus? Merrick then throws Kirk the communicator and they beam out. Although he doesn't actually throw it, he just sort of throws it into the cell, but somehow that works too, and they're able to beam out. Was the communicator still lying on the floor when they beamed out, or did they get that too? Questions I have. Captain's log. Commendation to Scott's record. Despite strong will, uh, he obeyed the orders of the Prime Directive. So he gets a commendation for doing his job? That doesn't sound right. I think he gets his commendation for figuring out a way to help them without violating the prime directive. There you go. Exactly, exactly. You do it in a way that has but, some plausible deniability, 
it's not like you know you you phaser some city blocks and everyone's like, what the hell did that? This calls for an yeah, explanation. Exactly. But a power the outage. The sun really exists. Yeah, it's like a power outage. You're like, yeah, power outages happen all the time. Yeah. Spock wishes he could have had more time to study the sun worshippers. But then Uhura pipes up. She's been monitoring their radio raves. And though the Romans tried to ridicule the sun worshippers, they couldn't. You see, because it's not the sun in the sky. It's the son of God. To which Kirk responds, Well, wouldn't that be something to watch happen all over again? I don't know, considering all the things that have happened in the name of God, would we really want to watch all that happen again? <laughs> and that's it. We're at the end. The fun thing about the night that this was shown, as I said again, it was on the Ides of March. Not only was Star Trek the network's top-rated Friday night show, but Brendan Circuses won its time slot. <gasps> there you go. In fact, the highest-rated second season episode. Of course, there was a reason. VBS bumped its massive hit Gomer Pyle at the last minute for a 30-minute news special called The Gold Rush 1968, which was making much ado about nothing. The supposed gold crisis of 1968. ABC also alienated its regular audience, serving up a one-hour documentary filmed in the London Theatre District called Examining What It's Like to Be a Thespian. Oh, yeah. I don't know so, whether that Google... Even still, I want its time slot, damn it. don't know whether Google is listening to us, but when I put in gold crisis, the first option is 1968. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. The second one is Gold Christ. Stop during... listening. Yeah. <laughs> the next one is the Gold Christ during the Cleveland administration, and then the Gold Christ of 1893, and the Gold Christ of 1869. Ooh. So, uh, Let's see, any other notes I didn't get to here? Uh, the guns that the Roman guards were wielding were Madsen, Madsen M. guns. Madsen M50 submachine guns. There we go. Oh, another uh, thing you will be pleased to know is that this episode marks the final appearance of Kirk's second season wraparound tunic. Ah. Yeah, so that's it. After this, Kirk resumes wearing his standard gold and uh, golden black. Good, because I don't like the other thing. I know. And we've talked about it before. It's funny that you don't like that. That's it. It. That's all I got else uh, you'd like to mention, sir? Nope. Yeah, we, covered we covered it. it pretty well. Definitely. Well, next week we get a really great episode, which apparently you've already watched, but that's cool. I just I'll catch up here. <laughs> yep. Journey to Babel is next. Exciting. We get to meet uh, Spock's folks. So that'll be great. Yep. Well, there we go. Tune in for that great episode. I uh, just want to let you all know there's lots of places you can find us. I know uh, Stitcher. Stitcher's been a great place for people to find us. we got SoundCloud as always. Uh, we're uh, bits and pieces on YouTube. We are also on, uh, we also have our own website, thebrotherstrickabout.com. We'll also tell you when we're releasing new shows there. We are also on Apple Podcasts. So, hey, there's so many places you can find us and listen to us. Do it. Find us. Listen to us some more. It'll be great. 
if you subscribe also, that would be also really helpful and nice of you to do for us. Thanks. All right. Well, that'll wrap up this episode. My name is Matt, as always, and coming to us from Houston, say goodbye, Ken. Peace and long life. There we go. And we'll see everyone for the journey to Babel. Babel.